This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Risk managers, armed with the most sophisticated quantitative tools available, did not foresee the biggest development in a generation, the systemic breakdown and global contagion of financial markets. As the smoke clears from this seminal event, Knowledge at Wharton looks at how to build a more informed risk management model in an interview with John Derzik, President and CEO of the Oliver Wyman Group, Richard J. Herring, a finance professor at Wharton, and Francis X. Diebold, a Wharton professor of economics, finance, and statistics. The three also took part in the recent Wharton Financial Institution Center and Oliver Wyman Institute 12th Annual Financial Risk Roundtable 2009. I want to start out with a very simple question. Can you really measure risk accurately? (laughs) Dick, why don't you take that on first? Well, I think the last year shows that we can't. That there are lots of things that uh, we can't quantify very successfully and that we really became overconfident in the things that we could quantify. We've made great strides in uh, risk analysis, risk measurement, and uh, in aggregating risk. Uh, But we've tended to focus most of those efforts on things that that are relatively easy to manage. And even some of those relations broke down. We simply didn't have enough data. Our techniques were not good enough. We weren't using enough uh, forward information. And... um, uh, unfortunately, this crisis is one that, that um, uh, has blame that can be shared across the entire spectrum of participants, from regulators to uh, participants in, in securitizations who, and even to risk managers themselves. I think that's right, Dick. And um, that reminds me, actually, of our project on the known, the unknown, yes. and the unknowable that we've done here at Warden at the Financial Institution Center in conjunction with the Sloan Foundation. And what we focused on there and what we really came to realize more intensely there was that there's a whole spectrum of risks ranging from market risk to credit risk to operational risk to legal and reputational risks and other things beyond that, some of which are comparatively easy to model, which isn't to say they are easy, but they're comparatively easy, and through to others which are really, really challenging and basically um, we're not good at it at all. Could you tell us what some of those are, Frank? Yeah. Um, as you go across that spectrum from market to market, meaning risks associated with movements in prices, to credit, meaning risk associated with defaults or bankruptcies, those sort of things, to operations, meaning almost anything, ranging from computer system failures to terrorist Ice attacks. Ice in the parking lot. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and the thing is, ironically – um, and, and somewhat depressingly, um, it's not the easier to model risks in many cases, but the harder to model risks that really bring firms down as opposed to just swing earnings around by 3 or 5% a year. Um, so we need to be humble, um, but we have made progress. And, and I guess I'd add to oh, – uh, no, just saying uh, – sorry, Dick. Uh, just going to add to Frank's point that uh, around uh, – that there wasn't enough um, attention on the unknown risks versus the known and that – uh, part of the problem, I think, is that uh, for people who are risk uh, analysts or practitioners, that 
uh, or in the academic community who track risk that there tends to be a focus of attention on risk modeling where there's data uh, rather than risk modeling where there's risk. <laughs> and so uh, because you can build much more sophisticated models where there's lots of data to work with, but that doesn't mean you're actually focusing your attention on the biggest problem that the firms face and that because that's where you have thin data sets and oftentimes have to make judgment calls, uh, people with an analytical bent are often uncomfortable going into that sphere, but that's really where a lot of the real big risks that firms face are. So you so you swim in the known waters and, and you sort of ignore the unknown waters, but then one it's day you get, you get thrown into the deep end of the unknown waters. Absolutely. There's the old uh, joke about the guy who uh, looked for his lost car keys under the lamppost because that's where the light mm-hmm. was. <laughs> but I guess I would also add to uh, uh, Frank's very good list of, of all the things we don't know as much about as we think we do. Um, to one that is really perplexing because it's how all of these things interact at a systemic level. It seems to be very dynamic. It can change rapidly. Um, I think even those who understood the subprime crisis were totally amazed that it brought down virtually the entire international financial system. Um, And these things are so inherently complex in terms of their uh, interconnections and their uh, knock-on effects that um, they may in fact be unknowable. And we may have to be able to think more about how you detach certain critical functions from uh, the system. Yes, I, I think there are two um, two key issues, or at least two, surely more than two, but uh, both of which are very, very difficult and related. The first is understanding correlations across banks, across financial institutions. And, and understanding and, how they vary over That's time. number two. And they certainly are different in crises, uh, just as volatility is different in crises. And of course, the way that they're different is often in, in very adverse ways. Correlations rise just when you don't want them to rise and you lose for example, portfolio diversification benefits yeah. just when you need them the most. The dirty little secret of diversification is that it disappears when you need it most. The only thing that rises in falling markets is correlations. Now, John, do, does that mean we have to tear everything down and start from the bottom to build back up? What's salvageable from the way things have been done? No, I don't think past. it's tearing everything down. I think it's it's building new pieces of the uh, infrastructure that I think a lot of the statistical modeling uh, that's been done, there's been tremendous advances in market risk measurement and credit risk measurement, as, as Frank highlighted. And I think those have their purpose within the organization. There's nothing wrong per se with measuring daily value at risk and using it in, in certain respects in, in managing a trading business or a lending business. I think it's just that if when I think we over relied exclusively on one type of risk measure and got a little false comfort that actually these sophisticated measures were protecting and measuring everything that we needed to measure. So I think it's more keep keep what we have, it can be refined, but also add to it uh, add things that are more focused on the unknown risks than just the known, more focus on stress and scenario analysis than just the sort of statistical analysis, which is more historical and look back in nature. And to come to Frank's point around correlation, if you 
look at historical patterns of things that haven't had a life that long. So, you know, what's the correlation of different classes of subprime mortgages in the period that subprime existed would tell you something very different than if you said, let's just look at a stress scenario where house prices move and you know all the things are going to hook together in a scenario of that type. So it would give you a, a different answer than trying to precisely estimate correlations and volatilities in a bottom-up way and construct risk that way. Nothing wrong, again, with that bottom-up uh, statistical measurement. It's just it has to be one element of a risk manager's toolkit, not the only thing that's relied upon for protection by an institution. So the, so the old ways had a, a sort of overconfidence about them, which was unwarranted and seemed to justify taking on risks, which in retrospect we now know were too much. So, so that leaves us with the let me see. Is it the known unknowns or the unknown? The knowns. Where does that leave us? Well, let me, let, let, uh, before plunging into that, let me just say one thing um, linked to John's uh, response now. I think it's helpful and important to distinguish between models and their successes or failures and uses or interpretations of models. And I think it's really important – for users of models to maintain a healthy skepticism about those models. In other words, you don't want to be celebrating your success and <laughs> giving each other awards and, uh, and, 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 and thinking that uh, these problems are solved. The, the right attitude is rather, surely this model's wrong. Where is it most likely to be wrong? Uh, when is it most likely to be wrong? Um, how could I maybe improve it such that ways that I might co uncover in which it's wrong get fixed? You know, you need to have a healthy skepticism. And, and the converse of that is what Dick was – I mean uh, what John was describing, namely complacency or, or, or celebratory sort of feelings like we've, we've nailed it now. We understand risk management. You know, we're, we're calculating 5% uh, value at risk, so that problem is finished. We'll move on. You, it's clearly not the case and it's important to do everything you can to heighten – your awareness and a firm's awareness that uh, skepticism is important with models. Another thing I'd like to highlight that, that uh, follows on John's comment is that there's been a failure, I think, in most risk technology to look at forward-looking indicators. Uh, they're out there. We um, saw uh, long before it happened that um, Bear and Lehman and lots of other firms were going to fail because of the CDS spreads widening up. But if you looked at uh, the backward statistics that you had to estimate from, you weren't picking that up. And in fact, uh, virtually every firm that failed over the last year had much more than the minimum required regulatory capital, which simply means the regulators aren't measuring capital very well. That's, an, that's interesting. Uh, but let me ask, when you talk about maybe early warnings, I think it was back in the 90s, was it long-term capital management, mm -hmm. LTCM, which went up in flames or went down in flames uh, in a way that was resembled what, what happened today, I think. Um, do, do you agree with that, John? And should there have been more lessons? I mean, it was seen at the time as an anomaly, I believe, but in retrospect, maybe not. Well, LTCM had some of the most sophisticated risk modelers in the world <laughs> working for them. So it was um, – <laughs> Uh, but so it was in, an omen. <laughs> yeah. It, it, well, well, I think it's it's a uh, it, it's another point reinforcing the kind of general theme Frank was hitting on, which is that you know all models are wrong, and maybe some models are useful, but uh, they're they all, having the sense that they're all wrong. And I think there was a, a 
a huge amount of confidence uh, bordering on arrogance in LTCM that they had nailed the modeling and that there was a certain trend that Martin markets always took and they were going to take a big bet in that direction. And then the model didn't quite predict exactly where this was going to go. And so, I mean, it's, it's a more complicated story than that. But I think there was a bet, uh, there was a confidence in convergence. Uh, convergence that was based on very sophisticated thinking and modeling, but which wasn't 100% right. And but so, the, other, and, the and, other key thing was the, the thing that Frank emphasized earlier, too, that they were relying on diversification. And suddenly after the Russian default, Everything that was not absolutely above suspicion, pristine quality, uh, started to fall at the same time. And so you had there's an interesting story that illustrates um, how judgment could have been much better blended with models in exactly this LTCM case, uh, told by Steve Ross at MIT, and and that is. Um, if one had simply gone to the data, a different set of data than the risk models were using, which might have just been 10 years of history on the particular assets being held, which as uh, Dick and John have emphasized is, is woefully inadequate, uh, and looked instead at government bond, Russian government bond issuances over the centuries, uh, you would have seen that not a single such bond made it to maturity since I think it was 1840 or something. And yeah. Steve, you know, quite appropriately points out, you know, risk management. Management. You want to do real risk management, you have to take a much broader picture, think about putting things in perspective, and again, ask, what could be wrong with the statistics? How could I flesh it out with, with broader knowledge? And again, that's not to say that the statistics is wrong or that we shouldn't be using models. We certainly should, but we have to put them in context and uh, try to think about where they might not be adequate. It's a very perplexing problem in a, a system that's as innovative as ours. Uh, how much history do you use? If you had looked from LTCM's viewpoint about spreads, and they were basically betting on convergence of spreads, they were looking in the beginning at spreads that uh, over the past five to maybe 10 years were at historic highs. But if they'd looked 20 years ago, it was routine. And the question was, um, was it a special circumstance or had uh, – the markets changed or had we developed new ways of bringing stability? Similarly, before the, the current uh, process, we were all talking about the great moderation where volatilities were virtually nothing and credit spreads were pricing in perfection as far as the eye could see. And house prices always go up. Yes. <laughs> no, that's right. And I think there is, uh, just to amplify that tension a bit, uh, simultaneously there are certain aspects of reality that are preserved over the centuries and it pays to know what's happened over the yep. centuries. There are other things that are actually drifting and breaking and changes as institutions and laws and the complexity of financial markets uh, evolves so that on the one hand, you want a long sample, a long perspective. On the other, you don't. And where you are in that spectrum is tricky business. It might, it might paralyze you, might it not, if you start yeah. looking at Russia and saying, well, I'll never invest in Russia <laughs> with that record because it's, it's a horrible record. I, I think another uh, source of insight that's often overlooked – take the housing crisis, for example, is cross-country comparisons. Although it hadn't happened to us in a long time, it's happened 
you know, literally scores of times to countries just like us. Um, and it usually happens after a very long period of rising house prices. Uh, but sooner or later, reality catches up with you. Can you give uh, one or two or three examples of those countries? Oh, sure. Um, uh, in fact, it's hard to, to figure a country that didn't have the problem. Britain had the problem, uh, and they've had it again. Um, uh New Zealand had the problem uh, a long, long time ago, and I think they may be headed for it once again. Um, the Netherlands had the problem, and in fact, there's a fabulous uh, a series you can look at in the Netherlands that is is really a gem. It, it goes back to at least 400 years along the Herengracht Canal. And the Herengracht Canal, when it was built and now, is one of the very finest neighborhoods in the Netherlands. And the Dutch, being uh, you know really, really good at keeping numbers, have the prices at which, which each one of those houses turned over for over the last 400 years. And what you see are these huge cycles up and down, you know, maybe once every 20 or 30 years, but... Um, if you'd bought and hold over the 400 years, you'd have made less than you did on treasury bills. It's interesting how the Dutch come, uh, seem to provide good examples because the tool craze is often yeah. used as a well, good example of a bubble. John, let me ask you a question about – because you have both feet planted firmly in the business world. And uh, when, when you look at all these, how much of this is uh, sort of behavioral, crowd mentality – these correlations that we talk, the things that shouldn't happen at the same time end up happening because, because there's a, a, a stampede of some sort. Um, and that's what wasn't predictable. Do you subscribe to that at all? Uh, well, that was definitely part of it. I mean, if you look at uh, institutions getting into, say, something like the subprime market, one of the reasons institutions who didn't initially go into it did was because of pressure. Everybody, everybody else was. Everybody else was in it. And if you were the one standing alone, you got pressure from uh, investors, analysts, other in internal pressure to be competitive and get into the market. And, you know, your stock price would suffer if you weren't uh, uh, following the same earnings growth trajectory as your competitors. And potentially, if you didn't follow suit, uh, you could end up uh, being an acquisition target for one of them. So they might have been on a excessive risk track, but in the short term, that was rewarded. It might have been enough to put you out of business in a different way. So I think there was that type of psychology. Not to, to mention to, your bonus was based on the next three months' performance. Right. There's a, a <clears throat> lot of things where really there was, we had too short a, a time horizon focus where we is a kind of very wide uh, community, not just people within the financial institutions, but the analysts and investors in them and others who followed them and media and so forth, all focused on who's gaining at a particular point in time, kind of, I think, pulled the herd mentality uh, along a little bit further than it would have otherwise been without it. We had an interesting discussion this morning um, uh, because we had on the panel that, that Frank uh, moderated, Bob Chappell, who heads a mutual organization. It's a mutual insurance company that's been around for 150 years. And he was pointing out that because they are mutually organized, he can keep his eye on the long run. He has to. Um, he doesn't care about quarterly earnings. He doesn't care about having more capital than um, hedge funds might think he ought to have. Um, he simply does what he thinks he needs to do to keep his policyholders safe. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting everybody should uh, mutualize all of a sudden, but there, there 
is a different dynamic at work for sure. The other issue that came up was um, do investment banks really make sense as publicly held corporations? They're just about extinct at this point as such now that they've become bank holding point, companies. Point may be proven. <laughs> yeah. Um, but as partnerships, they may have been considerably more careful, although smaller. Uh, with regard to risk. Lehman Brothers was undoubtedly a safer place when Ace Greenberg was on the floor watching every trader all the time. And he literally couldn't do that at uh, Lehman Brothers' new scale with uh, having uh, gone to the capital markets. Frank, I think you have a view to well, share uh, with us. Well, on here. this issue of um, behavioral effects and their importance, I would say clearly they're partly responsible. It 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 would be very hard to argue that they're absent in this situation. To make that argument is to say that markets are perfectly efficient at all times, and I just don't think it's true. Since but having said that, <laughs> having said that, um, I think the greater part of the crisis is actually linked to very sophisticated and very highly rational you know, economic agents responding optimally to the incentives that they're faced with. And a big part of the situation is misaligned incentives. Every time you turn over a stone, you find one or another example of that, whether it's loan originators with no skin on the game selling off these loans instantly and uh, no problem for them, or whether it's ratings agencies being paid by the people they're rating, or just more generally the situation in which institutions know that explicitly or at least implicitly the gains they make are going to be privatized and uh, when they get into trouble, it's going to be socialized. So these are, these are outcomes that um, are not uh, due to irrational behavior in many cases. They're actually highly rational. It's just that they're undesirable. All right. We're running a little bit low on time. Can I ask you each to take about 30 or 40 seconds to do the impossible task of, of suggesting what, what are the two or three things that might best help us in this situation? <laughs> um, I think the most important uh, thing I think the most important thing is for us to figure out a way to resolve large systemically uh, important financial institutions in such a way that there are not um, unbearable spillovers. And that means having prompt corrective action measures so that you can intervene before they're absolutely bankrupt. It means probably uh, uh, requiring them to, um, in some cases, spin off some things that are just too difficult to uh, manage. Uh, it means probably discouraging institutions from becoming too big to fail or too complex to fail. I was going to say, it sounds like that's what you're leading up to. John, do you agree with that? Well, I would say... Uh, I would focus at two levels. I think at the uh, regulator level and then at the level of the in individual institution, I think there's governance improvements in both. I think at the regulator level, I, I tend to agree with Dick that the increase in focus should be on the systemic risk. So I won't repeat what he said because I think that that's generally uh, the should be the main priority. I think in individual institutions, I think uh, a, a lot of the improvement in governance uh, could come from redesigning incentives as well as repositioning the role of risk management within the entity to have more influence on strategic decisions because it's not connected very well uh, today. So those would be the two things I would highlight. I would actually agree with Dick in the sense that 
effective resolution procedures are crucial moving forward, and we're not there yet. For me, it's not so much how to get through this crisis. We're basically going to just muck our way through it. That's what we've been doing. That's what we are doing. The bigger question for me is how to avoid things like this in the future, how to put things in place now that make it easier next time around and hopefully reduce the probability of having this another time around. And there, for me, it's finding ways to deal with the moral hazard in situations that involve uh, rescuing financial institutions while still having effective ways to rescue them. There's a tension there, but we need to deal with that. That's a tough one. Just real quick, does anybody have any ideas on how you do that, how you handle this moral hazard issue, which is a constant? Well, I think it really is resolution policy. Um, Resolution policy doesn't mean you don't rescue some parts of an institution, um, but you do impose discipline on the parts that are not systemically important. Um, so you might well uh, find that you have to keep the foreign exchange uh, market going uh, and uh, do what you need to do to keep that going. So a resolution authority needs resources. Uh, it's not going to be able to intervene so perfectly that it can always stop a decline before it hits bankruptcy. Um, but the idea is to have at least some of the creditors at risk, so they'll be helping the regulators and monitoring the institution and giving warnings that we can read in things like credit defaults, uh, swap spreads, and so, other things. So just to be clear, when you talk about resolution, you're talking about something similar to the Resolution Trust Corporation that helped uh, clean up the SNL mess in the late 80s? Actually, I'm talking more like uh, what the FDIC can do with bridge banks. And that has, uh, should have helped us um, – uh, in this instance, at least with the big bank uh, problems we have, except for the fact that when the legislation was enacted, they were given authority only over the banks, not the bank holding companies. And the bank holding companies have responded by putting 20 to 40 percent of their assets in the bank holding company. They would have to go through bankruptcy, which would be another Lehman Brothers. So, um, you know, you've, you've got to look at regulation as a, as a regulatory dynamic. Right. It's it, an it's, arms it's race. A, it, it's, yeah, and uh, the, the, it's not a very fair arms race either, I have to say. The well, private sector is fleeter on its foot and it has more resources and uh, the regulators are always running to catch up. Well, thanks very much for joining us. I'm afraid we're out of time. Um, and uh, hope we can get back together and do this again sometime. Thanks very hey, much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.